Hi, everyone. It's Jivana. I just want to come on for a moment and thank our sponsor, Offering Tree. They're an all-in-one, easy-to-use, community-backed business that saves you time, energy, and money as a yoga teacher. Offering Tree allows you to create a website in less than 30 minutes. Plus, you get a discount through Accessible Yoga. Just go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to get your discount today. Okay, here's our episode. Welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast. I'm your host, Anjali Rao. This podcast explores the connections between the teachings of yoga for self and collective transformation. We dive into how spirituality and philosophy can ignite social change. I share conversations with folks who are on the front lines of justice and liberatory movements, thought leaders and change makers, disruptors and healers. In honor of the Dalit History Month, we continue the discussions about the impact of the caste system in all the realms, from the corporate world to education to yoga. Joining us in this important conversation is Prachi Patankar. Prachi Patankar, born and raised in rural India, was raised by a freedom fighter grandmother and parents deeply involved in anti-caste, feminist, and peasant movements. Over two decades in New York City, she has been an activist, educator, grant maker, writer, involved in social movements which link the local and the global, police brutality and war, migration and militarization, race and caste, women of color feminism, and global gender justice. Through her work, Prachi has been involved in innovative projects to link social justice movements between the United States and the global South. Thank you so very much, Prachi, for joining us on the Love of Yoga podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having me. And just so much respect for you and the folks who continue to work tirelessly to make caste something we should address in terms of justice and work toward liberation. Could you please share first about your own background growing up in rural India and how does that inform your work and life now? Um, yeah, thank you so much for that question, uh, Anjali. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, a lot of the work that I do today and the approaches that I take uh, in my organizing is informed by the fact that I grew up in rural India among uh, peasant movements and anti-caste movements, really informed by um, the philosophies of uh, Ambedkar and uh, Dr. Ambedkar and Mahatma Phule, um, and uh, uh, of course, you know some of the leftist um, uh, intellectuals and uh, like Marx. Um, and so, I grew up among these movements. Um, I also grew up in an area in Maharashtra in India that had been a hotbed of strong resistance against uh, a, a movement against the British. Um, and specifically uh, the area that I grew up in um, and uh, um, that my grandparents were involved in a movement called the Parallel Government, which is basically, you know, Prati uh, Sarkar, uh, Parallel Government, uh, to build a, a, a united front against the uh, British 
occupation, but at the same time, understanding that we need to create um, and maintain our own governance systems that are uh, coming from the approaches uh, of anti-caste women's liberation and progressive orientations. And so my grandfather was involved in it. He was uh, underground uh, activist at that time. There was a warrant against him. My grandmother was part of that struggle. Um, and these founders uh, were strongly influenced by feminist and anti-caste performance in, in the region it's, of them itself, right? So Fule, Mahatma uh, Jyotiba Fule was not far from there. Uh, Shahu Maharaj, uh, who was uh, a great kind of a former, uh, although a king uh, in that area, but very strongly connected to Dr. Ambedkar, was from the area that I grew up. Um, and so this is what informed the movements around, uh, you know, really the uh, since the time of the British to the uh, time where I, when I was growing up um, in the 80s, um, really was about, in the 90s and 80s, was about, you know, uh, anti-caste women's liberation approaches to fight the right for right to education, to fight for land rights uh, for oppressed caste communities and women in general. And among the anti-caste feminists is where I grew up, who are fighting for a future without caste, while also fighting for access to land, also fighting for disrupting caste and gender-based violence that took place in the land struggles, that took place in the labor rights struggle. So, you know, that's where my uh, earliest memories, they were being part of these marches and being in part of these struggles in, in the areas and really influenced by these anti-caste, Dalit, uh, and oppressed caste feminists including my own grandmother and my parents, of course. So, um, yeah, that is, you know, that is something that informs my work that is very intersectional and very, uh, um, very anti-caste. Ah, that's wonderful to hear. Uh, I'm just getting goosebumps thinking about it, that you grew up in a place where people like Savitri Bhai Phule and, you know, Ambedkar. What I wanted to kind of like draw the listener's attention to, and if you could just share some more light on it, is that there is often this uh, gap in public understanding of the struggles of the caste oppressed at the same time while fighting the British, because that is somewhat not even highlighted in the textbooks that we studied. I grew up in India, too. Uh, so the textbooks we, we studied, which we never really talked about it. And that's because of so many reasons, including the co-optation of the struggles of the caste movement, along with colonization. Um, so could you please share a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think what happens, you know, so, uh, you know, Mahatma Jyoti Bafule, uh, you know, he was a you know, social reformer um, from many, many years ago. And he, you know, he was, uh, he's sometimes known as um, the you know somebody who was for uh, uh, you know school education and for equality of uh, education for women, um, and also somebody who faced in uh, his wife Savitri Bhai who faced a lot of um, problems because they were they wanted to bring education not just to women but to Dalit people, and so sometimes their work and even Dr. Ambedkar's work is kind of put aside as only kind of. Uh, work around caste system. But the reality is also that Mahatma Jyotiba Phule wrote about the land uh, system about land rights, right? How to, how to actually have, you know, liberation around land justice and labor rights. He was writing about trade unions uh, many years ago. 
Um, and he was also writing about uh, and working on struggles of education and women's liberation and caste justice. And at the same time, opposing um, and realizing that the struggle against British was uh, was contradictory, right? It was not going, it, it, as long as the British were there, that the, these struggles were not going to necessarily be won. So he was also against the British and, you know, uh, in the struggle against occupation and uh, colonialism. And same with Dr. Amberker, right? He was, he was, he's known as, of course, the architect of the, uh, in the, the Indian constitution, but even in the, in the left and, and the, the uh, kind of, um, academic uh, uh, understanding of who Dr. Ambedkar was. Um, he's a writer of the Constitution and he's a Dalit scholar, but he also worked on labor rights. One of them, one of his biggest contributions was around women's women's rights in the parliament and and making sure that uh, you know Hindu code bills is something he fought for very ferociously. Um, so he he was about women's rights. He was about land rights. All of those struggles and Dr. Ambedkar was very much at the forefront of not just kind of the struggles to fight that with the with the population, but also to theorize about it, right? And uh, theorize theorize about the fact that um, the land rights struggles and uh, workers' rights struggles are intertwined with caste. Um, and so, um, and and the like you said, the reality is that um, you know caste system is a, is a one of the oldest. Um, social structures that is a part of Indian society from the fir first millennium uh, BC. And a lot of uh, the kind of um, rhetoric can be from the uh, more dominant caste or even Hindu nationalists is that the caste system is created by the British or it was formulated by the British, right? But the, but the opposite is true, that the caste system existed a long time ago and British actually just entrenched it further and they they codified it in in a way and they worked with the dominant caste the Brahm, the brahmanic brahmanic system to make sure that they were consolidating power with the the topmost category within the caste system and so that they could maintain power so um yeah so that's you know one way to kind of look at how both the dalit uh, and anti-caste scholars are not relegated to understanding the the fuller uh, contributions uh, to uh, uh, the liberation of India and relegated to only about caste, nor uh, the caste system is understood in its fullest uh, understanding of, of how it is really part and parcel of Indian society for a long time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, could you give us some examples of how it has been institutionalized? Because what and it continues to be institutionalized. And like you said, the British did not form the caste system. They institutionalized it. They embedded it further and made it a part of government in many ways. Um, you know, so could you give us examples of how it has been institutionalized? Where do you see this? Because there is so much of like denial that it even exists. Uh, I remember growing up in, in India thinking it, it's, oh, it's banned and it's over, but very much alive. So could you share why it's been institutionalized? Why there is so much denial? Um, well, I think, you know, we have to go back to how the what, uh, what how the caste system was created and and how it is maintained. Right. It was created by uh, Brahminism, um, you know, the first million millennium, thousands of years ago uh, through, you know, Brahminism as a spiritual philosophy and ideology, which is really come to dominate what we know as Hinduism today, 
So in the caste system, as we know, Brahmins occupy the topmost uh, caste hierarchy and um, supposed to, by birthright, have performed the most intellectual, most pure, quote unquote, most clean forms of labor. And that the lowest category is supposed to be occupied by the former untouchables, the Dalit community. Um, and they're supposed to do the most unclean, uh, quote unquote, um, most underpaid occupations. And so if you, you know, you're talking about growing up in rural India, rural India, you see this most starkly and not to say that it's not there in urban areas too, and we can talk about that. Where I grew up, even today, um, when I go back home uh, to my town, my village, um, the town is divided geographically by caste neighborhoods. So you, they're named by caste neighborhoods. You're going to the Mahar and Mang Gully, right? You're going to the Brahmin Gully. Uh, you're going to the Sutar Gully, the people who work with wood caste. Um, you're going to the Teli Gully. This is a the place I, or the gully that I live in. And so you, that's the people who make um, work with oil. Um, so these categories uh, that because they're caste-based occupations, people lived in those caste-based neighborhoods and they still live to this day. The other way that it's institutionalized is that uh, people still marry within the caste system. So caste system um, is, uh, is, you know, really cemented through these uh, designated occupations and through marriage, through endogamy. So most people, there are love marriages that happen, of course, today in India and many parts of <laughs> the, the diaspora, but even the love marriages are within the caste, right? Um, and so in, in India, most of the marriages are still happening in, in, uh, within the caste system because a lot of them are still arranged marriages. And so Brahminism in some ways has maintained the suppression of uh, oppressed caste by controlling and limited, limiting um, access to positions of power to uh, to livelihoods, to love and marriage, to to through la land rights. So, if you look at who who owns the land, who does not own the land, to this day, uh, if you look at the uh, in terms of uh, uh, if you know farmers, if you look at farmer struggles and all of those kind of realm of struggles, um, the Dalit community is still uh, you know has a you know one some of the lowest uh, uh, ownership of land. And so when you're fighting for struggles, what are you fighting for, right? So the community is fighting for their dignity, their, their need for uh, getting fair wages. Uh, uh, and a lot of times, even gender-based violence and control over the Delhi community, uh, when it happens to about, uh, in terms of land, it's over, over uh, uh, control over the women, Dalit women in in the uh, in the Dalit communities because uh, that is through through the women's bodies that is how dominant castes are controlling and uh, violating and controlling keeping the power. And so, when these, if historically the designated occupations are hierarchical, years after to this day, if you if you even in urban areas. If you look at who's uh, who's uh, um, having jobs around manual scavenging, who's having the lowest paid jobs uh, in, a certain, in a certain kind of wage labor, there are still people from the oppressed castes. So you don't the caste system is uh, is so uh, I want to say brilliantly oppressive that it it continues to uh, uh, maintain that way, and um, it uh, kind of conforms to the modern day capitalist order, right? So it is um, 
people are still working within those kind of jobs. So when, because, you know, uh, caste, caste system was turned uh, in, in terms of some of the reservations have come in India, they have given certain opportunities for Dalit and other oppressed caste communities. Um, there are some people who've been able to get out of those caste-based occupations, especially Dalits, and come to different kinds of jobs. When those uh, communities come to those uh, into those uh, occupations that are not meant for them, right? That are not, that they are they're not entitled to. Dominant dominant caste communities feel very uh, entitled to those to those occupations, and then that's how discrimination happens. That's how oppression happens because they. They don't feel like they have control over what is entitled to them anymore. And so institutionalization happens through societal control. And then institutional institutionalization of caste discrimination happens also through the ways that, you know, who's actually controlling uh, systems of governance, who's controlling systems of uh, uh, media, who's controlling the media narratives. And yes. all of those are occupied by dominant caste, right? Yes. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And um, what about the narrative that, you know, once you move away from India, caste no longer exists or it's better here in the United States or the quote unquote, the West, Europe, Canada, you know, what about the narrative that or I'm sure you heard that I've heard that. Can you share some light about that? Does caste exist? I know it does, but how would you how would you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, first, I, I would say if it exists to such a degree today where we see we are seeing overt caste based uh, violence happening in India, we're seeing overt caste based and gender based violence happening in India, in India, we're seeing overt uh, impunity and people, uh, you know, with the Hathras case recently, people getting away with, uh, uh, you know, rape and murder of uh, the women. Uh, you know, knowing knowingly with uh, multiple cases and open uh, evidence against them, when you see that that is what exists today, and 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 in this time, people are coming to the United States as immigrants. How could they leave those prejudices? It's it's impossible to imagine that people would suddenly come to a different place and leave all of those prejudices behind. That is just not possible. So you know, the the fact is that in the United States. Um, it, up to this day, the, the majority of the people who've been able to have had the privilege to come to this country have been dominant caste Indians. And so especially those dominant caste Indians, like I said, come to the United States entitled to the jobs that they feel that actually by merit and by birth are theirs. So they're coming into jobs. Um, not all, not all of them. There is a lot of people who are in uh, working class jobs, of course. But many Indian upper caste privileged communities are coming into jobs that are tech jobs. They're coming into academia. They're coming into finance sector, uh, and they're they're they feel entitled. So when more and more the communities, more and more oppressed caste communities are coming because of what Dr. Ambedkar uh, and other uh, Dalit movement where movements were able to achieve through the reservation system and through you know affirmative action like uh, programs when people are having those opportunities from the Dalit and oppressed caste communities and they're able to come and work in the tech sectors they're facing their indian counterparts who are from dominant caste and they're saying you know they're they're facing 
discrimination. They're facing prejudices. They're coming into uh, Indian communities. They're already formed their cultural communities through uh, through really caste-based uh, systems, right? So they're, they're people who are already in you know, places like New Jersey and places in the suburbs where they're coming into uh, uh, places where uh, Indian communities are already having these cultural groups and most of them are you know, dominant caste and within the caste culture groups, they're finding each other jobs in certain sectors. And when the communities come, they're like, "How you cannot get this job, I'm reserving this for my own caste. They won't overtly say that, but that is the understood thing. And so it is very, um, it, to the you American uh, eyes, it can be uh, very invisible. But to people who are actually oppressed caste, these kinds of things can be um, seen. And then, of course, uh, you know, there are cases like the uh, the temple uh, example, right? In, in the Baps temple where Dalit and Adivasi workers were brought in for labor trafficking and servitude and exploitation and paid dollar a day. And that's the most overt form of caste-based discrimination and exploitation. So it happens in various ways in the U.S. still. Yes, and thank you for sharing all those uh, examples. Hi, everyone. I just want to pop in here really quick and remind you about our sponsor, Offering Tree. As yoga teachers, we are our own business managers, website designers, and producers. It's a lot. And Offering Tree offers an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to succeed while we're doing all the things. And I'd just like to say that through this partnership with the Love of Yoga podcast, Offering Tree has shown that it's committed to supporting accessibility and equity in the yoga world. Offering Tree is a public benefit corporation, and they're driven by a mission of wellness accessibility, which we share with them at Accessible Yoga. As an Offering Tree user, you'll get uh, to join a supportive educational community, and you'll also get free webinars with top experts in wellness and entrepreneurship. And of course, you get a discount. So go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to learn more and to get your discount. Okay, let's go back to the episode. Could you share something about how white supremacy intersects with caste supremacy here in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the um, ways that I, you know, I think I see it intersecting is that um, white supremacy, of course, believes in the supremacy of white people. Um, so everybody else uh, uh, is, uh, you know, not uh, uh, supposed to be in the in the powerful and the in the category that whites are, um, but within white supremacy, you cannot understand white white supremacy without understanding anti blackness, right? Without understanding the the history of enslavement and the history of genocide in this country. So even within the idea of white supremacy, there are uh, uh, you know ways that not all people of color face the same kind of uh, discrimination or same kind of uh, exploitation and oppression. So there is, a, in some ways, um, and Black people face the most uh, uh, exploitation and discrimination because of the way the history of slavery and history of white supremacy in the United States. Um, Indian Americans and South Asian Americans have come to the United States in the in the time of post civil rights movement when a lot of the struggle for civil rights for racial justice um, had been 
uh, together one by the uh, uh, anti-racist communities, uh, uh, white white anti-racist communities and with the leadership of black communities, right? So these struggles in the uh, post-civil rights movement were won by the civil rights movement and Indian American community mostly came after that time. And so they have been, Indian community has been reaping the benefits of the racial justice movement for a long time. So that's not acknowledged, right? So you, of course, you know, Indian communities, um, certain Asian communities face racism, face the uh, brunt of the white supremacy in, in that way. But we have to also understand that we all, you know, Indian American community also has certain privilege, right? They come into the society also uh, already being privileged from the uh, most of the majority being a dominant caste. And they already come privileged because black communities are still at the bottom in terms of how white supremacy looks at uh, you know, uh, oppression in the in the United States. Who who does white supremacists hate most? It is black communities, right? And so, uh, the way I look at it also is that, you know, it becomes really difficult when Hindu uh, nationalists in the United States oppose, um, you know, uh, str our struggles, uh, anti caste struggles to. Uh, ensure there is protections for caste discrimination that we try to include those in. You've seen this in the case of Seattle. You've seen this in other places where Hindu nationalist um, organizations are opposing uh, struggles by oppressed caste communities to make sure their protections, right? And it, it becomes really hard because they are claiming that there is Hindu phobia and they're claiming there's Hindu phobia because they're using the fact that there's white supremacy in the United States, right? And so for uh, even white liberals, it becomes really difficult to oppose Hindu nationalists because they don't know what to do. They're, they're in a confused state, right? They're saying, of course, there's, there is um, racism against Hindus when it's actually racism against Indians, right? It's not because necessarily they're Hindus. Um, and it is, it is really hard to unite people um, so in, 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 that, in that sense, it becomes very difficult. But the, the reality is that, you know, it, it, a lot of uh, Hindu nationalists are saying that calling out caste discrimination and making sure there's caste protection is Hindu phobia. But that's simply not true, right? That, you know, calling for a majority of Delhi communities who are still Hindu, asking for protection from within the, within the community Cannot cannot possibly be Hindu phobia. It just say, it's like you know so saying that you need for race uh, racial justice um, uh, racial justice struggles is not necessarily anti-white. It's 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 against white supremacy. It's against uh, racial discrimination. Right. I want to like draw the attention of the listeners also to what you said about uh, you know ethno nationalism that is obviously has been in the on the rise and continues to rise in um, in India and and the diaspora too, um, in terms of you know the rise of and the establishment of the BJP as as one of the most uh, strongly almost like a unipart one party system in in India. I won't go into all the details there because of time here, but in terms of um, how we can, as yoga practitioners, because yoga has been weaponized by the, the ethno-nationalist movement in India. And I want to like ask your opinion on how we can practice yoga, A, as people who are discerning about how 
yoga has been weaponized and b how yoga itself the lot of the practices and the teachings are embedded within the caste system so any any opinion or any sharing on that yeah i mean i think um the way that uh, yoga has been weaponized i think years ago there was a campaign uh, take back uh, yoga right at the from um hindu america foundation uh which is very much uh connected to um a certain hindu nationalist ideology um and not overtly so um so you know the claiming that it yoga is uh actually part of hinduism so you really to understand that you have to go back to what is hinduism right what is hinduism hinduism right is a construction is a construct developed in 19th century right it is made out of some incomplete element incompatible elements there about brahmanism bhakti tradition village gods and goddesses this is what makes up what hinduism today in the dominant form is brahmanism right so the real enemy the real uh struggle is against brahmanism not necessarily in some ways hinduism because hinduism is a constructed form and so then saying that so this is hindu then what are you actually saying is it is a yoga brahmanic is that what you're saying are you saying you know, is yoga part of the bhakti tradition you know we, we would have to go back and question that itself um and then i think the reality i think you you probably know as much as i do and more uh, because you are a practitioner of more of a practitioner of yoga and you know understand the history even better but um yoga is not it's not a monolith right it is it has gone through and um, there are some breathe, you know br- traditions of uh, breathing and breath uh, there is you know there is the forms that are physical that are actually from some nordic traditions you know so it's a conglomeration and and putting together a various forms that you know make yoga today and even now yoga still being developed into various different the vikram yoga and the, you know all these different forms people are still creating it and and changing it and shifting it and all of that and so this thing of uh it's saying that um and this is this is that's the reason i also wrote the article is that i think some for some people and even in the progressive south asian community were also feeling that yoga is being appropriated and yoga is being that and so we have to uh really um be careful when you're making the argument of appropriation when yoga's already been changed and appropriated and brought, and and brought together uh from various different kinds of forms and so yeah i think what we have to understand is that if there you know what what part of yoga that we you know we want to uh put forward and what you know how that actually is uh, a liberatory can be liberatory and healing and and caring um thing for the bodies and how it can be used for uh social justice um and uh, and care for people rather than something that it, it is an oppressive feels like an oppressive form and so what part of yoga um is that and we need to discard those parts that are that are oppressive that are not caring that are not healing for communities and i think there and you probably can talk about more of those that are those uh, forms i think uh, you know we have to be very 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 careful when talking about appropriation we have to be ter- very careful in thinking uh, talking about what is hindu and what is not hindu and we have to be very careful how certain forms uh, are um that are kind of physical somatic 
exercises that are used for to, for health and you know mental health and body purposes that can be truly healing for all people, right? And what that means is truly healing for all people. That means you have to consider how historically these things have affected oppressed caste communities and those communities. And if there are forms that you know and uh, in a parts of yoga that are oppressive, then th- those have to be discarded. Mm. They have to first, first of all, be acknowledged. So I think we are, we are just parsing um, how caste has been in, so influential in forming the teachings, who gets to teach, who gets to be a student, you know, historically and in the modern, in the modern yoga spaces. So thank you for bringing that up. I think what we are looking at uh, as yoga practitioners who are interested in these conversations, at least I am, is to hold the tension that, yes, there there is white supremacy and cultural appropriation happening in yoga spaces where there is South Asian Eurasia and that there is caste oppression, both. And we have to create spaces where we can have those conversations so that we can build spaces of care, like you said. So uh, appreciate you sharing that, uh, Prachi. I know that we've been having, uh, you know, in uh, organizations like Equality Labs. And I've had my first conversation with Tenmori in this on this podcast. So people are, and you have written like articles about uh, how caste discrimination is being addressed here in the diaspora. So first I have to offer my own congratulations because I think having those uh, victories and acknowledgement, I'm sure I can understand how how healing and uh, you know important that is in the movement. How can we as uh, people and I ha- I have a certain amount of caste privilege. Um, how can we stay in the conversation? How can we be in solidarity with with people like you who are in the front lines of this movement? Mm. Yeah, thank you for um, you know bringing this up because uh, you know. Part of this conversation is about how how we have, we can be uh, you know included and participate in the movements to um, abolish caste wherever it exists. Um, so it, we know now that the clearly that it, it exists in the United States, and you know there are organizations like Equality Labs, there are organizations like Ambedkar International Mission, there's organizations like Ambedkar International Center. Um, there's organizations like Ambedkar's King Study Circle. Um, there's organizations like Dalit Solidarity um, uh, uh, Center. So these, all of these organizations are the breadth of what, what makes the Dalit rights groups in this country. So we have to understand that, uh, you know, uh, also as people who are part of this wanting to um, kind of achieve uh, caste abolition and be part of anti-caste movements, you have to understand the breadth of who makes the Dalit communities, who makes the Dalit organizations and support all of them. Um, the other thing we have to understand is that, you know, in a place like Seattle, the struggle was achieved because of the unity of the all the Dalit organizations, because that there were multi-caste a uh, group of or leaders and organizations present in the struggle. There was multi-faith leaders, Muslim communities and other uh, communities in Seattle that joined the coalition. Uh, so the coalition of um, Indian Americans in Seattle and other groups that were part of the coalition in Seattle, that's what they, um, you know, with Shama Sawant, who was a city council member, they attributed the, the fact that the, the struggle won was because of the multi-caste, multi-ethnic, multi uh, religious, multi-faith, um, and multinational 
kind of characteristic of that coalition. And so what I'm trying to say is that if you if one has one wants to see themselves in unity and allyship with caste abolition and caste struggles in the United States, you have to be part of those coalition. You have to join those struggles and understand what is what role you are going to play, whether you're in academia and, and there's a lot of South Asians in academia. If you're a South Asian in academia, what is what role are you going to play to make sure not only system systematically or systemically you're going to bring caste discrimination uh, you know protections in the in in the academic institutions but also what role are you going to play to support more and more Dalit students that are coming into academia and don't have the support system and don't have the safety nets that a lot of South Asians have in the United States how are you going to what role are you going to play to ensure that you're supporting their 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 struggle and their their um, uplift like upliftment to what so that they also can grow right what role are you going to play in tech industries where there are a lot of south asians when there's another south asian or indian who's upper caste that is clearly discriminating another person what role will you play as a as an ally who is a Dalit, who is an upper caste ally so that's the that's the question that we have to ask ourselves as uh, as we are supporting the struggles but not to be a passive kind of observers of the struggles, but understand what is it that you can do from wherever you are while you're supporting the led organizing and while you're support, supporting oppressed caste or led organizing in the United States. Mm. That's that's exactly what I uh was hoping that we bring into these conversations is how we can be an active uh, active um allyship and solidarity with the caste abolition movement, because oftentimes what happens is, you know, we have these conversations when something happens and then we kind of leave it and then our attention gets diverted or whatever. So I want to continue to draw attention. So I so appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about that. And I always ask this of all my guests, and especially you uh, who are, who are, who is doing the frontline work of so many, so many things, so many uh, very critical and often heartbreaking uh, movements. How do you take care of yourself? What are your non-negotiables of self-care? Mm. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I live in an area that has, you know, some hiking and waterfalls, uh, you know, trails and, um, you know, I try to, you know, be in the nature and take care of myself and make sure that my body and my mind is uh, well, well cared for by myself and, uh, you know, also friendships and community, right? I think a lot of, um, lot of what sustains us and makes us thrive, at least for myself and what gives me joy is, is having a, a loving and a community and friendships uh, along with the kind of my own self-care. Those are kind of, those are connected. And, you know, my kiddo, my, I have a six-year-old uh, and my partner, they give me joy and they, you know, that having them in my life and having a young person, uh, you know, you know, being, being young and being curious about the world and uh, really understanding how, uh, in, in a more simplest, simplest way, fairness uh, and how, and asking those questions in with curiosity, those those things really give me joy. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I so appreciate you for having this conversation with me. And I hope to continue to see your work uh, being highlighted and uh, hope to stay in touch with you with, through, through your journey. Thank you so much, Prachi. 
Thank you so much for having me and keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for being here for this conversation. Please support our work at Accessible Yoga Association by becoming an ambassador or checking out our studio at accessibleyoga.org. Thank you.